Welcome to Tête à Tête, a series putting the spotlight on women with extraordinary stories to share. I'm Kiani. And I'm Nada. In this podcast, we ask women about their life experiences and the obstacles they've had to overcome to bring their ideas to life. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. Today we are interviewing uh, Deepika Shetty. She is the author of the infamous Red Helmet, a story of love and loss set against the backdrop of 1980s India. She's also the founder of Sadi Sari. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yep. A page credited for reviving interest in saris. She's also an activist and a social media guru. And most importantly, she's a mother and a mentor. So welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted. It's your debut edition and you never ever forget things that happen for the first time in yes. your life. And to just play a really small part in it. And I'm looking forward to watch it grow as you get in more women like me on the show. And really, um, I, I think what I would really look for is stories that exist in crevices and perhaps don't get the kind of mainstream attention. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a, it's, a very, it's a very important narrative to have. When did you start writing your book and how did you do it? Uh, if you look at the time frame, books don't happen overnight. It's a story sort of stays with you forever. And I think for me, what happened in India in 1984 was something that had such a huge influence in my life and what happened with the politics uh, around a riot. Uh, it, was, it was just sort of seeping in my pores and I knew at some point I would write a book. I've, I've been a journalist for 23 years, something I just left two months ago. And I think deep down, every journalist wants to sort of stretch their writing for it to be a, a bit more profound than a byline and something that stays. So I always say that I've been writing this book for 23 years. The big struggle with the process of writing the book was really trying to find a voice. And when I was a lot younger than I am now, I just did not have any confidence in my voice. And I think as I reached a certain age, um, the, the attitude also shifted. Like you didn't really give a damn if nobody liked your voice, but you you had you had increasing confidence in it. And I think there was there was a moment where I knew this was it and I could write it. And then the process took me nine months. What do you think makes a good piece of writing? Something that stays with you for a really long time. Uh, it is not about perfection. It is about, um, it is often not even about the play of language. I sometimes find that the most beautiful sentences that stay, stay with me are sentences that, that are saying very simple things that Good writing is not about adjectives. It is about just very simply getting the message across. And as a writer, I'm, I'm very, very fascinated by what language means. Like, I'm fascinated by Singlish. And um, this book is also that struggle with language because we are all in, in, 
if you, if you grew up in India in the 1980s, you were always told that you had to speak English, say, a certain way. Yeah. But who had defined this English that was the accurate English? I know when I went to London for the one and only time in my life, I was completely blown by the number of English accents that exist. It's so, like different dialects. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's the beauty of writing, that it should be an exploration of these many things that exist within the language itself, and it doesn't have to be complicated. So what's usually your favorite time and place to write? After 10 o'clock when everyone in my house is asleep and nobody needs to ask me a question about anything at all. I'm a, I'm a total night bird. So I, the process of writing this book and most other writing, apart from my journalism, is writing I do from 10 o'clock at night till about 3 in the morning. And my apartment sits on, on the edge of an expressway. So there is this constant surround sound. Which, which we are hearing right now. You know, yeah. we've, got, we've got a certain sound. I like the rhythm of sound. It doesn't... For me, things don't have to be completely quiet. I, I think I work well with, with a certain element of chaos. Um, but I would say I, I, I work best at night. Um, I don't think I would ever be able to write very early in the morning. There, there, is, there is a certain kind of edginess to the sound of the night. And I think people who inhabit that space completely experience it. You, even sometimes when I go to a party, I'm completely awake at midnight. So I would be my my energy might be dipping at ten, but I would be alive. And it, it's this surge of, and then I have a surge of words, and I need to find spaces to put these words. So it was fabulous that I found an entire book I I could put my words in. Could you talk to us a bit more about 1984? and how it inspired you to, to write a, your book? Um, I, was, I was still uh, very much a teenager. I think early, early teens, 1984. I lost my mother in 1981, so I was experiencing two levels of loss. And my mother died of breast cancer, and it was, it was a very bitter and painful end. And... Um, she died in 1981, and then in 1984, our Prime Minister was assassinated by two Sikh bodyguards, and I come from the Sikh community. And a lot of us who were traveling through India at that point in time experienced something that I describe with, in, in rather painful detail. It, it almost forms, I would say, the premise of the book in, in many ways. Because when I personally went through 1981 and 1984, the loss was so intense that I, I always questioned that I did not have the ability in me to love anyone again. For instance, I, I stopped going to the Sikh Gurdwara. My, my faith had been tested so much that I felt God had let me down and he wasn't listening to me and I didn't want to pray to God anymore. Um, 1984 and 1981 are both years that have stayed with me. I think I still grapple with uh, what what I experienced, what I saw. At, at that moment in time, the mainstream in India wasn't as strong 
as it is now. You know, we didn't we didn't have the 24/7 television network. We didn't have the kind of breaking news. I just feel to this day we don't feel a sense of anger about 1984 the way we feel anger about a lot of other things that happen in life. Mm-hmm. which is not to justify any any sort of violence i think violence is painful on many many levels but i wanted to question also why is it that a certain incident sort of almost falls through the cracks and some of the other incidents don't mm-hmm. and for me this was the strongest i did experience other pretty violent situations in india but for me 1984 was a period in time i I wanted more writers to go back to it particularly writers who were doing indian writing in english and indian writing in english currently is just so fascinating in terms of um, the way they explore narrative the freshness of stories but i just felt this period that was really truly mine had not been explored and 1984 just gave me that thing that i could develop a whole book out of and really i make my protagonist lose everything and it is it is also to question this in life because there are there are so many people out there who who just have to start from absolutely nothing and even when they build up their lives everything falls apart as did happen last year with my aunt you know like your your lives are constantly sort of semi ending but not completely ending in a sense you're not dying but you're left with all these memories that only you know how to address and you can either choose to sink into depression or you can become hugely optimistic about life or you could become a person who does not give at all or who gives in the extreme and i was interested in these kind of narratives that 1984 helped me hook the story onto do you feel like do you ever worry that you put too much of yourself into the red helmet well that's what the reader imagines that it's too much of myself yeah. maybe it is not okay but if you think it's my life then my job as a writer is done but I'm not your husband's which... name is kind of mentioned in the book so it starts to feel like it's really you yeah it could be me it could not be me and um, a lot of people who know me who read the book write to me and they say oh my god this sounds completely real when it would be the part that that's absolute fiction okay but it is for the reader to decide if it feels like fact then it's fact if it feels like fiction then it's fiction and uh could you talk to us a bit more about uh how you got your book published that was a huge 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 challenge because i think most people don't realize that the act of writing a book is really touching the iceberg in terms of getting a book out and uh, the book started uh, really by accident because i imagined i was a famous author which i wasn't <laughs> i imagined i was a really famous author who was going on to this television show that i produced at one point in time and it was just one of those 3 a.m.s where i couldn't sleep and i had to put my words somewhere and i put it up as a note on facebook and there was suddenly a lot of interest and um, a friend of mine who's a literary agent called me up and said where's the rest of the book people want to read it and i'm like there's no rest of the book and she had been telling me for years that i should i should write a book and she said this is really the moment when you should just give it a shot because there is interest 
there is a way you write and um, i went on a sabbatical completely went for broke which is a great way of writing a book because you're constantly on the edge financially personally and in 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 every which way you're you're just you, you can just jump off you know and when the when the book was done it's almost you, you do the whole process of sending it to a literary agent and then you wait and you wait and you wait and i waited almost a year from the time i finished um my manuscript and no one no one really got back till i was at a dinner party and um i ended up sitting next to a curator who asked me what have you been doing and i said i've been sitting with an unborn child it given that's a really strong statement but that is the feeling of a book that hasn't made it to print i mean in a in a sense it exists but it doesn't exist and he found me my publisher at this at this dinner party yeah and the book finally happened how did your family feel when you took that year off like were they supportive or were they concerned um I took a couple of months off but yeah I was writing it the whole year they they were very supportive but I it's not easy living with a writer I think a writer deals with so many insecurities in ways that you you don't grapple with those insecurities when you're in a day job a, a day job is a very different dynamic there is a certain rhythm that you wake up you get dressed to go to work and you you do something with your life but but writing is a completely different creature some some days you're sitting in front of a computer and you can't even get a word out and you're so frustrated because you're just like sitting there and you cannot get a word out and that's that's the way it is and i i think um, it was a challenging time they don't say it but i i guess it was a difficult time for us all and it's 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 also this process because you always have to be in a sense unhappy with your words you you can't be satisfied you can't say this is the best piece of writing because that's really for somebody else to decide you know so you live you live not just with this insecurity of sometimes not finding the words at all or the narrative not stringing together but but this thing of i'm not writing the right book and you deal with it every every day could you tell us what's the most important thing that you've learned from your grandmother because you talk about her in your book and mm. and she seemed to have been a really important part of uh in your character's life but what about in real life yeah i i ended up uh, living with my grandmother for a while and she she's the really truthful character in this book mm-hmm. she is exactly like the grandmother in this book and <laughs> thank god she's not around because she would just completely kill me if i don't to her oh she hasn't yeah. seen <laughs> yeah she doesn't know um what she represents and one of the things i wanted to do with the book and sometimes people say it's a feminist novel and i'm not entirely sure i really wanted to explore the narrative to three generations of women and my grandmother's generation of women in my view was the most colorful um generation in a sense so i i only know like i'm now experiencing your generation which is different but my grandmother's generation was a generation that had uh, sort of if if we look at history in in various parts of the world a they had a very difficult life uh, we had none of the amenities we had nothing at all 
like a lot of people who lived in India and in a united India in the 1940s. She came from a united India and then India were partitioned into India and Pakistan. And she came with the nightmares of a partition, of a woman who had seen the partition. And I still remember that she used to curse and swear in her sleep. And there was, there was no way of understanding it. But when I reflect on her life now, I realize the kind of trauma she had been through. And, you know, people hadn't addressed depression or uh, seeing a psychiatrist wasn't like the coolest thing yeah. to do. So these women never sort of went for all of that. With A, they were they were also very confident in, in many in many ways, even in terms of the way they dressed. You know, they kind of knew this was my style and they didn't have to adjust it at all. They didn't adjust their language. They spoke a certain way. They were completely unafraid of whatever they had to say. And I I, I value her for that kind of honesty now. Of course, when I was a teenager and I was living with her, I used to always hope she would be a little bit more polite and nicer to my friends and all of that. But there was a real honesty, a, a raw, I, I would say it was like a raw integrity that whatever she had to say, she said it to your face. Yeah. So there was no, you know, the, there, was no, there was no pretend, there was no pretending, the, the guard was always down. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. If I think you're cheating me, I'm going to say it to your face. And I, I think if we look at our generation now, we have access to so many things, but we don't have the confidence if somebody's hurt us, for instance. Yeah. We would never have. We would never go and say it to their face that you've hurt me. So, but my grandmother, if if somebody upset her, she would go walk up to the person and say you've upset me, and she would move on after that. And there, there is a lot to take from that generation of women in terms of voice, in terms of dress, in terms of having no duplicity in your life and living life on your own terms and still have color in your life. I think my grandmother is really the most colorful woman I've known in my life. I, um, I didn't love her unconditionally. It was hard to because she was that kind of person. But the kind of things that she has left me with, to stand up for things, you know, if something is going wrong, go and stand up. Don't don't worry about the consequences. And she, she did these things. I remember there was a girl being eve teased outside our house and she had this stick and she went and she stood in front of a jeep full of guys and brought this girl into our house. And I'm just thinking, she's like a woman in her 60s who can get beaten up. But she would go with so much confidence that you wouldn't see this this woman who can who can take on six men with with ease and I, I I take all of I mean all of that really completely stays with me and I'm I'm grateful to her now I, I wasn't then for for things that she has taught me not not so much as giving lessons but really just watching her sometimes you just watch a person and you learn they, they, they don't have to give you a manuscript yeah it was like a life lesson living with her. And what's the biggest thing that you would want to impart to your daughter? I I would a few a few things. One one thing, and I I say that to women all the time. I'm emerging from a very grave personal crisis with my aunt, who's a victim of abuse, and uh, having seen what has happened to her and 
why it happened and all of that, one of the things I say to women everywhere is, it does not matter who you love, how much you love this person, you cannot compromise financial independence. Whatever happens, you should be able to put food on your own table. You should never be dependent on, on anyone. And I say that um, even, even family, that we have to teach our daughters to stand on their feet. And I can't reinforce this message enough that they must not ever be dependent on, on anyone because things go wrong in, in life sometimes. And it is, it is a message for my generation, for the next generation. Find a job, create a job, do what it takes, but be financially independent. And so we had a question also about confidence. Like how, how do you deal about with uh, other, other people judging you or criticizing you? Or it used to hurt me a lot initially and I would sort of uh, get very, very upset and moan about it for days. Uh, I, I think a lot of my confidence now also has to do with the fact that I found this art. And this is my voice, this is how I write. And I bring a bit of tradition back. It says something. Uh, it doesn't upset me now anymore like I've become really thick skinned and I think as a journalist you get criticized a lot and uh, there's something one of my first editors had told me when I joined the job and he said um, if people are not criticizing your writing it means your writing is having no impact Yeah, and I don't mind the criticism when it is about the writing the thing is criticism tends to get very very personal it tends to get very petty I wish the criticism would be issue based you know, take me on for a stand I take on a certain issue as opposed to her butt looks so big or, you know, why is she like this and why, why is she dressed like that? That, that I think, is, is a very trivial conversation, but I pay absolutely no attention to it anymore. And I think you've sort of answered this, but have you ever suffered from, like, the disease to please, like, feeling like as a woman you have to be likable or... I don't, I don't think so. I, uh, no, I, I've lost a lot of friends along the way, but I, I think if I have to say something, then I just say it. Social media has just made it a little bit easier to say it. Of course, I realize now that my following is, is, is a real following. I'm mindful of what I say. Like earlier, I would just post whatever came into my head, but I, I kind of reflect on, on my posts and sometimes if I'm just in a bad mood I won't post anything like I don't want to upset people because you you realize people who read you now are people who've never known you so they don't yeah. they don't understand and neither should you expect them to understand um, what your story is and it is it is perfectly fine they follow you for various other reasons and it is a kind of responsibility you have towards them and I think it was an Instagram handle you introduced me to Nada and my, my daughter introduced me to uh, Ashley, uh, Ashley Graham and I, I really like reading her because I feel the way she puts her message across is so positive it's 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 beautiful that uh, and I know my daughter was saying that she says you know a lot of this whole struggle about voice and 
you know, as, as women, we all struggle with our bodies. They're either too thin or too fat or too in the middle. And it's, it's this constant battle. But a lot of people who write about these issues tend to get very angry and very negative. But the way she writes about it makes you sort of believe in the beauty of not just form, shape, size, but really just the beauty of words and how you can put the message across in so many different ways. So I'm, I'm mindful. I, I try to be positive even when I'm feeling like I'm down in the dumps. So speaking of body image, because you also touched on it in your book. Yeah. I don't want to mess it up for people who haven't read the book, but um, how do you think your way of dealing with it has changed from when you were younger to now? I'm still uncomfortable with it. Uh, I'm very conscious of my stretch marks. I've never worn a bikini in my life and I probably never will, but I'm very, I'm still very conscious of my body and I wish I wasn't. But um, it is also, it, it's the subject of what was supposed to be my second book, which is the whole struggle with the body and how we are enforced these stereotypes. Like when I was growing up, I was, uh, particularly when I became a teenager and I stopped playing sport and, and really my, I was just constantly reminded I was dark and I was the fattest in the family and I was the shortest and my face looked a certain way and my chin wasn't right. and. You know, it, it kind of messes your head up a little bit. And uh, we, are, we are far from reaching a state where we stop judging people based on their body type. But it is important that we have a dialogue about it, that there are many women out there at every age who are not at peace with their body type. And how else do you explain the fact that you go for a dinner party and, you know, people are still just counting the next salad they're going to have that we yeah. we've stopped even enjoying the meal that is in front of me I eat pretty much everything that's that's put in front of me but yeah I have to work harder at my body and the day I stop exercising I can sort of feel it all crawl back yeah. and maybe someday I will be completely at peace with my body but today is not that day have your experiences like impacted how you deal with your daughter like if she's not feeling good about her body do you try to like... I, I'm constantly trying to explain to her also it is you're built a certain way you know the Indian body South Asian body looks a certain way that even if you did not eat food for the rest of your life you're not going to look like the girl you're trying to look like yeah. and what is to say that that is the ideal image type who is deciding this for us you know we've been we've been enforced these models on us all the time and perhaps we should question them um, so can you tell us uh, we were interested about your Masi your, your aunt and what happened to her could you tell us a bit more about what happened and how you helped her with your book yeah um, I, I think also what I would like to touch upon is is the context of my Masi mm -hmm. she is the generation of women I say is the settling down generation yeah. you know their whole thing in life is they want they want you to get like a job but like what they would call a decent settling down type of job so do your beard and become a teacher or become a college lecturer or a professor and when I was growing up at one point I wanted to be a spy and I went for that interview so I used to completely freak her out with all the things I was doing with my life and um I don't think she was even particularly happy that I became a journalist eventually because I, I was studying to be, uh, to be a lecturer or a professor, 
you know. Mm. And I was on a Ford Foundation fellowship, which I completely left midway to go and become a journalist. So she wasn't happy about it. But I, I think it it is also a generation that was that became too polite. Like everything about their life had to be right. And I think that politeness and that political self-imposed political correctness uh, got my aunt into so much trouble. Like she. She just kept adjusting. She just kept trying to settle down and not um, coming to grips with the kind of ugly reality that she was living with day in and day out. Yeah. She chose to be silenced, and uh, it is I I can completely sense and understand her utter and absolute sense of despair. But the fact that a woman who had a master's degree in English literature taught in a university before she got married would one day become a newspaper headline as a woman who has been locked up and abused and left to die in in her own family home is something that calls for great reflection. You know, why did this woman end up in a state hospital with a status as a destitute when she comes from a family that superficially is rich? You know, surely she should have stood up for herself much, much earlier, and that's the part that frustrates me—not not just about her, but even it's it's the finger has to point at me as well that I didn't sort of maybe push her to stand up for herself earlier. I should have, um, but she ended up in a state hospital in India, was treated there. And what happened with the book was it became a fundraiser for my aunt. So people would buy the book, and uh, they would fund the book, and I could pick any reader. Mm-hmm. So after the book had done, well, it had been around for less than a year, and there, there was this really fascinating campaign that started with it. And I would find people, the uncle who was cleaning in my office, and I knew he wanted to read my book, but he could never buy it. He would never be able to afford my book, but somebody funded it. I would give him a copy. The security guard who would always ask me, um, and you know, how many books are you mailing out today? I could give him the book. My petrol attendants who were like just completely so proud of what I've achieved with the book. I gave everybody a copy, and and really, you know, just just to have those kind of connections. The courier guy who comes to my house, yeah, and he would always see my book, and he took it home for his daughter, and and that and that this. Book became more than a book, and that that is that is why I tell people that if you have a story, you must take it beyond everything because you never know what's going to happen with it, and just the kind of connections I make with it day in and day out. The fact that you're even interviewing me, you know, is is something that would not be possible, say, if I had made the choice to be only a journalist. And there is nothing wrong with that. It's, it's like there's great beauty in journalism, but. But the book allows me to do more with with everything in my life. It gives me, it allows me to get onto platforms where you can not just speak about issues. You can also, in some ways, shape policy. And I, I take I take that role with a huge degree of seriousness. And so your book is about love and loss. So how how did you find the strength to love again? To overcome your loss in the pain, I wish I knew, and I think I've spent God knows how many if it's 200 over pages trying yeah. to figure that out. I guess you survive and you journey on in life, and there is something about life that starts making you feel hopeful again. 
you don't fall in love too easily because there's you you just live with this dull ache that you're going to lose it any day but then if you start to question the very premise of life the the only certainty about life is knowing the fact that it is going to end i mean the un, only certainty about life is death and at some point you internalize that fact for yourself and you become a bit more easy about things you start going with the flow i think you reach um, emotionally a much more relaxed state of mind i'm i'm personally very obsessed with death i think i talk about death so much that i'm often told to shut up about it <laughs> but i i think to deal with the idea of death is 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 a it it also makes you a different human being when 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 you when you sort of know that this is really all in passing and if you read a lot of philosophy if you read a lot of uh, literature you know which which traces back to to philosophical roots they call it maya that all of this is transient and and when you realize that it is transient you sort of live in the moment and i think i reached a point in my life where i learned to live in the moment and perhaps that kept my faith alive <laughs>